My name is Russ Deary. I'm a member of King's Cross Church and serve on the First Impressions team on Sunday mornings. You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We are working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. I think names matter. Like what, what you call something, um, it matters because it communicates something. And once you call it something, once you give something a name, it's really hard to change it. So um, you may remember um, somewhat famously a guy named Sean Parker told a friend of his named Mark Zuckerberg. He said, why don't you drop the the and instead of calling your new startup internet company the Facebook, just call it Facebook. And that was like, wow, that's awesome, you know, because the Facebook isn't quite as, as uh, catchy, right? Um, famously, and this is kind of an urban legend because it's not really true, but it illustrates a good point. The Chevy Nova, you know, N-O-V-A, somebody's heard this, right? Like a le- the urban legend is that it didn't sell well in Central and South America, America because Nova means no go in Spanish. Um, it's actually not true, but it makes the point really well, um, and it's a funny story to tell because names matter. Can we be honest that the English name for the fourth book in the Bible is just bad? Like, it's just a bad name, right? Because you're working through, and you say, Genesis, oh, beginnings, that's awesome. Everybody loves a really good beginning, um, and, that, and that's so great. And then you get to Exodus, you're like, ooh, Exodus, there's, somebody's getting out of something, and people, are, there's movement, and like, I'm with you. And then you get Leviticus, what? I don't, numbers, I'm out. <laughs> numbers, I don't, like, even math nerds start reading through numbers, and they're like, oh, it's really just like the first few chapters are a census. Next, you know, people <laughs> move on. It's just a bad name. Okay, but the Hebrew name for the fourth book of the Bible is In the Wilderness, which is a much better name. for. And it actually tells, it gives you a much more of a hint of the contents of the book than calling it Numbers. And so if you're brand new, we're working our way through the overarching story of the Bible this year from beginning to end uh, all year long. And so we, we saw that God made everything that is. We saw that people sin kind of wrecked that perfect paradigm. And God made some promises to, to make all things new again and to bless the world through a people. And then in Exodus, we saw that he freed those people from slavery. They get across the Red Sea. They camp out at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up. He receives some laws and regulations from God on how it is that these people who've never been a people, this nation that's never been a nation, how it is that they're supposed to live. And that it, those laws and regulations are summarized in the book of Leviticus, which takes its name from uh, the tribe of the Levites who were the priests. And then as numbers open, these books overlap with each other. So as numbers opens, Israel is still encamped around the base of Mount Sinai. They have been there since Exodus 19. And there's a census being taken Uh, that is going to prepare the people to step into, quite literally, the promise that God had made to them that one day they would have a land of their own, the land of Canaan. And so they remain at Mount Sinai all the way up through Numbers 10, and then they depart there for a place called Kadesh Barnea, which was supposed to be like a 
like a staging point for their assault on the, the people in the cities of the land of Canaan. So Numbers 10 through 19 record this 40-year wandering that happens because of the sin of the people at Kadesh Barnea. And they wander around for 40 years in the wilderness. Again, much better name. After 40 years, chapters 21 and 22, they find Israel once again staged on the outskirts of the promised land. By chapter 26, there's a new census that's being taken to prepare the people once again for this push into Canaan. And then the last 11 chapters of the book, 27 to 36, are basically instructions on what life is going to look like once they get into the promised land. So that's kind of where we are in the story, in this series that we're calling the story. But here's why it matters to you. Because Numbers is also going to explain where some of you are in your story. Because the truths that it contains are divine, timeless, eternal truths about God, about our relationship with Him, and about our own journey through, if you will, the wilderness of this world. And so there's three of those truths I want to show you this morning. One from each of these three kind of primary sections, Israel around Mount Sinai, Israel wandering around the desert, and then Israel again poised um, to go into uh, the promised land on the plains of, of Moab. The first uh, truth that I want to show you from that kind of first section of the book is that God's will is that our lives be oriented towards him. Be oriented towards him. I forgot my water, so let me, let me grab this. Shout out to Kathy, by the way, for getting me this snazzy mug because she said my other one um, looked rather pathetic and was falling apart. So. <laughs> so God's will is that our lives be oriented towards him. From Numbers 1-1 to Numbers 10-10, God is teaching Israel and us that truth, that he and his purpose, his intention, is that our lives be oriented towards him. He commands Moses to take a census of the people in chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 1, verse 54 says, that's what they did. They took the census. So their, their actions and their activities are oriented towards God and his word. God then gives this very specific arrangement of the camp. And the camp, depending on how your numbers work out, it, it's at least 600,000 men. And so there's likely, you know, well over a million people, maybe as many, some scholars say, as two million people. God gives them this very specific order of the camp. This tribe here, this tribe here, this tribe here. They all face the middle and in the center is the tabernacle. And so literally the people are physically oriented around God. Even when they decamp, when they, when they go on the move, he tells them this is the order of your column. You know, this tribe, this tribe, this tribe. In the middle of the column are the Levites carrying all of the mobile pieces and parts of the tabernacle. So the people are physically oriented around God. Numbers 2.34 said that's exactly the way that they camped, and exactly the way that they traveled. Get to chapters 3 and 4, and you're introduced to the Levites, this tribe of priests. And then in chapter 6, to the Nazarites, people who voluntarily opted in to a higher standard of living. And, 
And the Nazarites and the Levites serve as a reminder that the nation of Israel is supposed to be distinct from other nations. They were, they were kind of like a mobile incarnate reminder of Israel's distinctness. They were markers that you could see and interact with so that they never got too far away from your head, that life was supposed to be oriented towards God if you were part of the nation of Israel. The seriousness of this is highlighted in these prohibitions against uncleanness which are found um, in chapter 5. It covers all types of things from like leprosy to suspicions between husbands and wives. And, and God is reinforcing, no, no, you're my people. This is the way that you're going to live. The offerings in chapter 7, the Passover celebrations in chapter 9, and ultimately the visible representation of the presence of God that was the cloud that covered the tabernacle is at the end of chapter 9 in verses 15 to 23, and it shows how all of life is supposed to be oriented towards God. Here's a little bit of what it says, verse 15, chapter 9. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. This is just synonyms. At the evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that, the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. We skip down to verse 22. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp, and they did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped, and at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. God's will is that our lives be oriented towards him. Is that true of your life? Is it true of our church? When you make decisions about where to live or what job to take or what school to attend or who to date or who to marry or when, where, and to what extent you're going to be generous. When, when you decide what gossip to share, what secrets to keep, what sin to hide. When, when you're thinking about where to serve, where to give your time, how to use your influence. Are the decisions that you make and the actions you take, when you decide to kind of metaphorically stay put or to go, when you decide in, in what direction and with whom your life is going to proceed, are those actions and those decisions oriented towards God? That's what Numbers is calling us in the opening chapters to consider. Are we like Israel? Do we move when God moves and stay put when God stays put? Or we kind of have our own agenda? I pray this will be true of our church. I pray that in our staffing, 
and our budget, our local outreach efforts, our mission trips, our strategic partnerships. We want to be moving where God is moving as we pray together as a faith family, as we worship in the sermon series that we preach, in the way that we handle biblical texts. We want to be led by the Lord in our discipleship models and how we care for one another and encourage one another and fellowship with one another over smoked pork, praise God, and rebuke and correct one another. Are we being led by, is our church oriented towards God? We want everything we do to be oriented towards him first and only after that towards one another and the community that he's placed us in. Can I I just encourage you, you do not want to be a part of a church that is focused on you. You make a really bad God, and so do I. You don't want that. Even in your own life, when I think about my life, almost all of the really dumb mistakes I've made, and brothers and sisters, there's a list. Almost all of the decisions I've made that I wish I could go back in time and do over again, I made them in seasons of my life when I was focused on me. But God's will for you and for me and for us together as a church is that our lives be oriented towards him first. And the reason for that is because he loves us and because he wants what's best for us. And he knows, second, that sin both causes and is caused by a disorientation from him. Being disoriented from God, it it is that begins with and leads to sin. Israel sets out from Mount Sinai in chapter 10, verse 11. Chapter 11, verse 1, they're complaining. Half a chapter, and they're complaining. These people who witnessed God triumph over Egypt in the plagues, who were saved from slavery through the Red Sea on dry ground like a highway, who have seen and heard the very presence of God descending on the top of Mount Sinai as they were encamped around it, are complaining. Numbers 11, verses 4 to 6. Now the rabble that was among them, and that's kind of a pejorative term, but what they mean is the, the people who, were kind of, who kind of went with them but weren't ethnically Hebrew. So it's kind of this, you know, everybody else. The rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. I'm done making jokes about the barbecue. Um, (laughs) Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, other than the fact that they were slaves, that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. 
Later in chapters 13 and 14, the leaders of Israel are sent out to recon the land of Canaan. And they come back and every single one of them, except two, Joshua and Caleb, say, there's no way we can take this land. We just can't do it. Numbers 13, uh, we'll start at verse 27. And they, the leaders, they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. They had taken this um, cluster of grapes that was so big they had to carry it on poles in between them. And, so, and this fruit, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. These are like, they're huge people. Down to verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people. They're stronger than we are. So they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out, it's a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And, they seemed to, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we, would die, that we had died in the land of Egypt! Would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Let us just go back to Egypt. Back to slavery. Back to the time before this Yahweh even revealed himself to us. Let's trade God for better food. And besides, think of the women and children. Cowards. I'm sure that their concern was the women and the children. Literally, this is their argument. What seemed like a blessing days and weeks before. Freedom from slavery, God's presence among them, manna every day. Now it seemed to them like hell on earth. We have to get out. So in Numbers 14, 28, God gives them what they want. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my presence I will do, or what you said in my hearing, I will do to you. He says, you rather die in the wilderness than trust me to overtake Canaan? You got it. I'll give you what you want. Every single person who is a part of that generation that had left Egypt in the Exodus, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, would die in the wilderness. And that's why they had to wander for four years around Kadesh Barnea because God was waiting literally for them all to die that first generation of adults who grumbled and wanted to go back their lives and their hearts and their actions have become disoriented from God 
And sin both causes and is caused by this in our lives too. We have disoriented cravings or we become discontent with what we have. And so we grumble and complain. Over time, when our grumbling and our complaining isn't met, with changed circumstances, we begin to blame God for not giving us what we want. And eventually, we start to look for another source of satisfaction and blessing. Or maybe we exaggerate the burden of leading a godly life. We romanticize sin and, and we look back to a time before God was such a big presence in our life. And we say, man, it was better back then. Why don't we just go back? to living the way we used to live before this whole church and God and community and gospel. And like, this is just, it's too much. Yesterday's blessing that we rejoiced about and we posted about and we gave a praise report about in our prayer group. Yesterday's blessing becomes today's status quo. We demand something more, something fresh, something new from God. Our hearts become disoriented from God because we are looking at or we are looking for something or someone else to save us from this imagined hell of the wilderness that we're wandering around in. The imagined hell of this wilderness that's called waiting or singleness or underemployment. The imagined hell of this wilderness called parenting during terrible twos or tweens or an empty nest. The imagined hell of this wilderness that is the size of our body or the size of our bank account. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. Some of those things are painful. Like they're awful. They stink. And... and, And longing for them to change, longing for an end to wandering around in the metaphorical wilderness, that is not in and of itself sin. It might be, depending on the orientation of your heart. But it isn't necessary. Wanting hard seasons to be over is not ungodly. Israel's problem wasn't that they'd grown tired of manna. We can understand that, right? When Numbers chapter 11 says manna was like this... um, flaky little yellow pellet kind of thing that that was like coriander seed. And so what would happen is every morning when the dew would fall on the ground, so would the manna. And the people would have to go out and they would gather it up and then they would have to grind it like either in a hand mill or with a mortar and pestle or something and they would uh, add some oil to it and they would boil it into little cakes every day. Now, I don't care what it is. Eating anything every single day gets old. The problem wasn't that they were tired of these manna cakes and they just wanted some good Chinese food for a change. That's not the problem. The problem is where they were looking for it. The problem wasn't that they were tired of the manna. The problem is where they were looking for something different. Let's just go back to Egypt. At least there we had cucumbers. Let's go back to Egypt and life under Pharaoh. 
Life under the Egyptian gods surely is better than this. Because this whole people of God thing ain't what we thought it was going to be. You ever been there? There right now? If so, then Numbers speaks hope into your wilderness wandering. Because despite all the grumbling and all the complaining and the open rebellion of chapters 10 through 19, God reaffirms his commitment to Israel. We see it first in chapters 17 and 18, but it's demonstrated, I think, most profoundly in Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. Here's what it says. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Where there's no food, and there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food. <laughs> Which is just funny. There's no food, and we hate it. Well, pick a complaint. You know? No. What follows this grumbling is judgment. God has already demonstrated his holiness and his love and his power, his willingness to save and to preserve his people. And so the judgment that follows their persistent grumbling is a righteous and just response to what is nothing less than open sin and rebellion against God. And so they receive what sinful, rebellious people deserve, judgment. Verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses, and they said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Moses intercedes for the people. Watch this now. The very source of death, the fiery serpents, becomes the source of their salvation. Verse 8, The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The sin of the people didn't negate the faithfulness of God. Instead, God gives them an opportunity to look to him again and be saved. And this is the story arc of Numbers. In large part, it's the story arc of the entire Bible. Because the pattern that we see over and over again is that God's will is that our lives be oriented towards him. But sin is both caused by and causes our lives to be disoriented from him. And then third truth in your notes, God's faithfulness calls us to reorient our lives to him. He has a will and a purpose for us. And our sin makes us go our own way. But his faithfulness calls us back again. The episode with the serpents in Numbers 21 basically kills off the remaining adults of that first generation. And so Israel sets off again, this time for the plains of Moab. They are headed again to the promised land of Canaan. And by chapter 26, they've arrived, and a new census is taken. 
So the book begins with a census. Some bad stuff happens and a new census happens. Now a new generation is officially recognized in the books and a new opportunity is given to those people to reorient their lives towards God. The book ends with 11 chapters of God reiterating what life as his people should be like. And then the book ends. Just ends. This new generation waiting on the plains of Moab with this unanswered question, will they or won't they reorient their lives in God? And every generation since, including yours and mine, is faced with that same question. Will the faithfulness of God lead you to reorient your life in Him or not? How will you respond to the faithfulness of God? And make no mistake, Numbers is in the Bible for us. And I know that because Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 10. He says this in verses 1 through 11. I do not want you to become unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. That's Numbers. He's just summarizing what Numbers summarizes. Verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages come. Do not make the same mistake, Paul says. Instead, look to Jesus and live. This is Paul's argument. Well, where'd he get that from? I mean, come on. Paul, how are you going to get from a bronze serpent on a pole to Jesus? Like, where'd you get that from? You got it from Jesus, as it turns out. John chapter 3, we get this story. There's a man named Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus at night. He says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you need to be born again. Uh, how am I going to do that? That's really well timed. Is it not? If every time I said you need to be born again, a chime chime, that would be awesome. That would be so good. You know, that would be so great. Um, it's like if I had a, you know, Steve just stayed back here at emphasis. That was awesome. That was great. Genuinely. Jesus says you need to be born again. Nicodemus says, I can't climb back in my mother's womb. I can't do that. 
And Jesus says that, you know, you're missing it. That's not what I mean. He says this in John 3, 14 to 16. Nicodemus knew the Bible. He says, this is Jesus speaking. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So where do you and I look? Towards whom are our lives to be oriented? In whom are our lives to be found? In whose hands are our futures to be trusted, our reward to be found, our joy to come from, our assurance, our provision if, if you or I recognize that our lives have become disoriented from God, that, that sin has caused us to do that, or that we, we just kind of casually drifted away from Him and now we found ourselves in sin, in whom or to whom should our lives be reoriented? In Jesus, who is lifted up on a cross who died in our place for our sins, who was buried and raised again, and now has been lifted up yet again into the heavenly places where he is seated at the right hand of the Father until such time as he returns to make all things new again. And so just like the serpent in the wilderness, all those, Jesus says, who look to him, who orient their lives around and in him will be saved will find life, eternal life. Those who do not will receive from him judgment and death. This is the illustration that Jesus uses. And Paul tells us these things were written down as a warning to us and as an instruction to us. And so Numbers stands not as some dry historical census. Numbers is a call to every new generation, to every church, to every person to intentionally, radically, and repeatedly orient our lives around God and his son, Jesus Christ. We look to Jesus and live. Let's pray. Father, we have gathered in this place this morning to turn our eyes to you. Our hearts and our minds bring all kinds of distractions in here, burdens as we're weighed down by cares and sin and worry and hurry. And yet we are here because we want our lives to be reoriented towards you and we need it every week. We continually need to be reminded to keep our eyes on you. Would you help us in that? Would your spirit prompt us in that and lead us in that? That when sin crouches at the door and seeks to distract us or to disorient us, would you give us the power to rebuff it? And when we find ourselves as we look around, already in the midst of disorientation, would you take us by the hand and graciously lead us Back to you, our hearts are prone to wander. 
but your goodness calls us back. Your faithfulness calls us back. Would you help us to be this type of church as well, Father, who is oriented to you first so that together we might link arms for the sake of your kingdom and the community that you've placed us in. In Christ's name. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.